Welcome to Matthew's World of Wine and Drink, an educational podcast dedicated to teaching you all about the world of wine, the different grape varieties, the different regions, and the history and culture of wine. I'm here with uh, Clay Morrison of Morrison Vineyards, and um, I met him a few weeks ago and found him a fascinating character, especially for his passion for Zinfandel. And he comes from a farming family that goes back 150 years, which is central to what he does now. So, Clay, could you explain some of your family history? Absolutely. Um, Last year was a really special year for us. Um, 2018 marked our 150th anniversary of farming in Sonoma County. And for those of you that aren't math whizzes out there, we um, homesteaded our first piece of property in 1868 in what is now Rockpile. But it's pretty hard to imagine a time when land around here wasn't desirable and still available for homesteading. So my great-great-great-grandfather was quite an entrepreneurial and industrious you know, person for being an uneducated immigrant. Um, he was 17 year old, years old when he came to the United States. And where did he come from? He came from Sweden. And, um, you know, like most people, certainly if you were in the European continent, you came through the East Coast of the United States. So this was before Ellis Island was even operating. Um, he stayed in the greater New York area for a couple of years, and we can only assume to learn the language, make some money. And then amazingly, um, when he decided to come to California, because it was post-gold rush, but it was still the boom, so mm-hmm. lots of opportunity in California, this blows my mind, that he didn't cross the continental United States, he sailed around the Horn. And as crazy as that seems, in the reality of the situation is that would have been much, much safer than mm-hmm. trying to right. cross the continental United States, because you had to deal with... You know, weather, I mean, just horrible weather, crossing major rivers, mountains, without the infrastructure we have today. And then, you know, you had Native Americans that weren't too happy about the white settlers (laughs) coming in. So um, pretty unbelievable to think that, you know, he would have, you know, sailed around the Horn of South America to to come to California. Do you know what inspired him to come to California? You know, again, um, chasing the opportunity that the gold rush presented. And again, clear that he was not necessarily out here you know, with the dreams of, you know, finding gold, because it was kind of, you know, post-gold rush, mm-hmm. but there was a massive boom. And we can only assume that, you know, the wild, wild west was maybe a little bit too wild for him, because he spent a very little time in Sacramento and then migrated west. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I wish I could tell you, you know, exactly what the reasons were. Um, when he was in Sweden, he worked as a blacksmith's apprentice, so I think he had a familiarity with livestock. Mm-hmm. And you know, from what my grandmother has told me, that was one of the reasons that he ended up in this area. Now, we raised livestock, um, primarily sheep, but we had cattle, and um, he was able to homestead property, which is just uh, unbelievable. Um, the first piece of property was homesteaded in 1868, but the homesteading process took a couple of years. You know, you had to essentially plant your flag in the ground, but more importantly, you had to show that you could improve the property. And by improve, what that meant, you either had to raise crops on it, you had to raise cattle on it, you had to build a house on it, something that was essentially colonizing it. And we don't like to talk about that ugly side of it, but mm-hmm. there were people here before us, right. and the U.S. government wanted to colonize that property, and that's what they you had to. You know, in order to get it granted from the government, you had to show that you were doing that. There were a lot of limitations on how much property you could homestead at a time, and it was dependent on the president, but it was always either a section or a fraction of a section you know, per person. And what continues to amaze me about my grandfather, again, or great-great-great-grandfather for being an uneducated immigrant, is that he was very entrepreneurial. 
and realized the limitations of how much he could homestead. And then even once his children came over, how much they could homestead. And so he went to some of the neighboring families that he had got to know and said, you know, if I use your name, you know, will you let me attach your name to homestead in a piece of property? I'll do 100% of the work that it takes to, you know, get that deed. But when you get the deed in your name, I will buy it from you from agreed upon price. And it's what allowed him to basically grow our original homestead into 4,000 acres of land before the turn of the last century. Um, you know, we often joke about, you know, the Great Depression and, you know, Prohibition. And one of my grandfather's, you know, great remarks was that, you know, we didn't know there was a depression because we were so poor, it didn't matter. <laughs> and I mean, it's true. If you were living off the land and you didn't have money in the stock market, and the depression hit, how did it really affect you? Maybe you had a little bit harder time selling your wool or <laughs> selling whatever crops you were raising at the time, but as I said, we lived off the land anyways. And then prohibition certainly didn't help us, but it didn't you know, really hurt us that bad because while we were growing grapes and had been since the very beginning, um, even though my ancestors knew nothing about growing grapes, when in Rome do as the Romans do, and everyone here was, uh, you know, was certainly farming a lot of vineyard, um, it was not the major source of income for us. You know, the major source of income was merino wool and then, you know, cattle and whatever other row crops we could farm. And so, you know, fast forward to 1968, and that was really the pivotal year in our family's existence. Um, in 1968, the Army Corps of Engineers decided that they wanted to build a lake, or build a dam, I should say, to create a lake. And we know that today as Lake Sonoma. And the unfortunate thing for my family is that the vast majority of our property was right smack in the middle of where they wanted to build that lake. And so in 1968, we lost 3,300 acres of our 4,000 acres to eminent domain. And yes, of course, we are paid for it, but um, hard to believe that paid can be a relative term. Mm -hmm. um, the land appraised at around $1,300 an acre, and we were paid $110 an acre. And so, you know, you can say that we got paid nine cents on the dollar, which sounds really bad. But when you really look at it, as I like to say, from an inflationary perspective, you know, we had 4,000 acres of land. You know, we were farming about 300 acres of vineyard and a couple hundred acres of orchards. We were raising a thousand head of livestock and we had our two family homes on the property, my great grandparents and my grand grandparents. Well, the 3,300 acres we lost were the best acres. It was all the acreage that we were farming. It was all the acreage that had grass that the you know livestock were consuming. We lost the valley floor land and we lost my both homes. And what we could afford to buy with what we were paid was 90 acres of prunes in Alexander Valley and a house in Hillsburg. So you could say that the net loss was 3,200 acres, but the net loss was so much more than that for us. We lost our entire way of life we lost our entire revenue stream. In, in some ways, you could say that we lost our identity. And again, it's one of the things that led me to do what we're doing today and you know why my family has been able to persevere is because we are farmers at the core of our being. It's been in our family for generations, and I certainly have every expectation that it will be for future generations. But it, it was a devastating time for us. So that's kind of the, the probably more information than you wanted to know but. <laughs> Well, no, because so you get to that point in 1968 when you have to, your family has to transform your way of living or how yes. you live. And so, how did they? What did they do? 
Well, I guess the silver lining about 1968 was that the, the grape business, the wine business, was really starting to take off. Um, you know, we, we like to think of our California wine history as being, you know, this incredibly long, you know, centuries old history, but it's not. And when you, I think we could all agree that, you know, when Robert Mondavi opened the doors of his eponymous winery, that forever changed the face of the California wine industry. And Robert Mondavi was started in 1966, but the facility, to my recollection, opened in 1968. I mean, it was a landmark occurrence in California's wine history. And so we quit, very quickly converted all of the prunes that were on the property in Alexander Valley to vineyards. Um, it's almost comical to think about you know some of the stuff that we were growing back then. Um, about a quarter of the vineyard we planted was Pinot Noir. And again, it shows the infancy of the California wine industry that we didn't have a true understanding of our terroir. Um, but it also shows my family's roots as grape growers. And I always tell people there's a monumental difference between being a grape grower and a wine grower. You know, a grape grower is a farmer. And very simply, they want to maximize the profitability of an acre of land, regardless of what they're farming. You know, a wine grower, you know, our goal is to maximize the quality of fruit produced on an acre of land because we can recognize the profit on the wine side. And when you're a grape grower back in 1968 and a winery gives you a contract to grow Pinot Noir for sparkling wine, you know, that's a heaven sent. Because with Pinot Noir, you don't have to get it to you know high sugar level, high sugar levels or high bricks. You know you pick it generally around 19 bricks, which meant that you had much less risk of inclement weather in the fall. You could also crop it a little, little bit heavier because again you're not having to to meet these high sugar standards. And so as farmers, we didn't care about you know terroir. We didn't care about necessarily. It's not that we didn't care about quality, but it was hey this winery is going to pay us to grow Pinot Noir, so that's what we're going to do. Um, and that really kind of pushed us into being full-time grape growers, was converting that land over to vineyard. And again, silver lining, it was a good time to really commit to being in the you know, grape growing um, marketplace. And, and my dad, you know, while it was devastating for him to lose that property, he was 18 years old when we mm -hmm. lost the property. Um, he was also a very driven person and, you know, did everything that he could, you know, to get back to a full-time way of farming. Because, you know, unfortunately, um, you know, there was a, a large family that my dad was part of a large family that now this 90 acres had to support versus the 3,300 acres and very diversified farming operation. Well, now we go to just farming grapes. And so while my dad was working with my grandparents, and very quickly took over the farming operation because my grandfather got very sick. Um, he was also still trying to provide for his growing family. And so he was, you know, beg, borrowing and stealing to, you know, get management deals for other people's vineyards, to buy as much land as he could, and really kind of reshape the history of our family into, you know, what is now primarily a grape growing family. And so when did the shift to winemaking happen? Um, the shift to winemaking didn't happen until 1998. And, you know, my brothers and I often refer to our childhood more as an indentured servitude than a normal childhood. I like to say that I've picked a lot of grapes against my will <laughs> and learned at a very early age that I did not want to do the rest of my life. And there's absolutely no doubt that I'm the black sheep of the family. All three of my brothers went off and got viticulture degrees and, you know, came back and worked in the, the vineyard side of the business. 
And for me, you know, growing up, being forced to work in the vineyards every waking moment that I wasn't in school or playing sports taught me what I did not want to do. Um, I tried to get as far away from the wine industry as possible. Um, I went to school to play football. I majored in marketing, minored in finance. Nothing to do with the wine business. And I think the the most um, succinct way to sum it up is that sometimes in life you just don't know what you have till it's gone. And it took me getting away from California, but also getting away from my family to appreciate not only what a special place Sonoma County is to be born and raised, but how incredible my family's history was. And you know, at that time, to think that my dad was a fifth generation farmer, farming by and large the same piece of property for generation after generation after generation, it's really amazing. And I don't know any 17 year olds that could truly grasp the, the meaning of that and the um, rarity and importance of that. But getting some separation, and, and I often say the perspective is a, a very important and necessary thing. Um, being away at school just gave me a, a deep appreciation for my family's history. All that being said, you know, there, I knew there was no way in hell that I was going to work on the vineyard side of the operation. Um, I, you know, developed a, a love and interest in wine in an early age, and I joke that when, you know, all my friends would get care packages in college, it would be like laundry detergent and rolls of quarters or, you know, whatever it would be. And I was always really popular because my parents would send me cases of wine as my care package. Um, but, you know, I thought having degrees in marketing and finance that maybe the sales side of the industry was something that um, would be, you know, suited for my education. And so when I graduated from college, I applied for a whole bunch of sales and marketing jobs at wineries and got laughed out of every interview I ever went to because, you know, I was an ignorant 21-year-old kid who was applying for these director of sales and marketing <laughs> jobs. I mean, what did I know? And come to find out that the only reason any of these wineries were interviewing me is because my dad was selling them grapes, which meant that they had no intention of hiring me. They just thought they were doing me a favor, which was great because I learned a lot about the interview process. But honestly, still being a little bit overconfident, um, I thought, well, you know, this obviously isn't going the way I'd hoped, but if I can just get my foot in the door at a winery, then I'll work my way up into that dream sales and marketing job. And you know, there's really two entry-level positions that you can go to in a winery. You can go to work in the tasting room, which is great because there's no more important, you know, touch point mm -hmm. for telling a story and learning about um, tasting wine and talking about wine. Or you can go to work in the cellar where you learn about making wine. And so I thought, well, you know, that would probably be more important in the long run to learn about the production process. So I went to work in the cellar at a winery. And when I say I went to work in the cellar at a winery, I was not an assistant winemaker. I wasn't an enologist. I wasn't a lead cellar hand. I was a bottom of the rung, entry level cellar employee. And I will never forget that here I had two degrees out of college, my first real job. I was getting paid $11 an hour to drag hoses around a cellar. But the truth is, within two weeks of taking that job, I knew what I wanted to do the rest of my life. I just absolutely loved it. And as crazy as it sounds, from a, a family who had now been growing grapes for six generations, you know, when you walk into my parents' house, there was a plaque on the wall that said, a dinner without wine is like a day without sunshine. And we embodied that to the fullest extent. We had wine with every dinner that, that I could ever remember. But I had never connected the dots between what my family's business was of growing grapes and what we enjoyed on the table every night. It was a total disconnect for me. And I'd visited, you know, if 50, probably 100 wineries 
when I was working with my dad in the vineyards, going to deliver grapes. And, you know, I understood, you know, what a winery was and what it did. But I think at the heart of it, you know, wineries were always kind of the, the dark side, the evil empire, if you will. Um, the truth is it's, it's a fairly contentious relationship between a winery and a grape grower or a farmer and the product they're supplying, the person buying that product, no matter what it is. Because at the end of the day, you know, the producer, in our case, a winery, they want to get the fruit at as low a cost as humanly possible to them. And of course, the farmer, the grape grower, wants to sell the fruit for as much as they possibly can. So it creates a somewhat antagonistic relationship. So I had spent my entire childhood listening to my dad and grandfather talk about how the wineries were beating them up over price or the wineries were you know, saying that they didn't make the quality standards and trying to lower the price after the fact by 10 or 20%. And there was this really contentious you know, aspect you know, of the, the winery and grower and you know it was fascinating for me for the first time to be working in a cellar and see this thing from the inside out because the first thing i realized is you know wow it's not like a bunch of darth vader's running around these are actually really nice people and the winemaking process just blew my mind and i don't i didn't recognize it at the time but i knew there was just something so special about it and having many many years now to look back and reflect on it um, I think the most simplistic explanation of what makes wine so special and why it, it, it just you know, pulled me in is I think it's one of the very few vocations in the world that is simultaneously left brain and right brain. There's an inherently scientific, scientific <laughs> aspect of making wine, you know, the chemistry involved, um, the biology of growing grapes. I mean, it's very scientific, but it is inherently artistic. There are so many artistic decisions that we make and from the most simple aspect on the farming side, which often isn't thought about, you know, what to plant where, at what vine orientation, you know, what rootstock, what clonal selection, what pruning method, those are in basically artistic decisions. Um, when you start getting into true winemaking decisions, do you pick at 22 or do you pick at 23? Do you ferment in open top, in closed top? Do you do stainless steel? Do you do wood? Do you do concrete? Do you do extended macerations? Do you pump over? Do you punch down? Every single one of those multitude decisions, you know, changes the ultimate outcome. And, you know, I think most people would say that it's not about better or worse. It's about different. And that is art, right? You know, you put 10 pieces of art in front of people and you know, of course, the artist that produced each one of them is going to think it's the best, but art is so subjective and as is winemaking. And it just, it pulled me in, you know, full force and I just fell in love with it. And like I said, I feel so blessed to say with 100% honesty that two weeks within taking my first job out of college, I truly knew what I wanted to do the rest of my life. And so when did you decide to set up your own winery? Well, I realized that I had some major deficiencies in my education. Um, back in the day, um, UC Davis had something they call their certificate course in wine so not a postgraduate degree at all. But I, it's pretty funny that um, I refuse to let my wife throw this box out. But this is how da I'm dating myself now. But you know, you received the biggest box of VHS tapes you've ever seen, and you could watch the um, lectures on VHS and then you could take the exams remotely. So it was a great way to just strengthen my base knowledge of you know, chemistry and analogy and how to apply that in the winemaking world. 
Um, I it was also great because it allowed me to continue working at the winery I was at. And while I was working at that winery, a really interesting thing happened. They got bought by a large corporation. And back in the mid to late 1990s, you know, we had no idea what terms like consolidation or commoditization meant in the wine business. You know, wineries were by and large small family operations. But, you know, starting in around the mid 1990s and it just started to pick up steam, you know, as we went on, you know, you had a, a massive um, exodus in, in the wine business. And it makes sense, right? You know, the wine business really grew up, as I said, you know, when Robert Mondavi started his eponymous brand in 66. And so a lot of people entered the wine business at that time. And think about, you know, when people are in the prime of their careers and, you know, want to, you know, chase their dreams or start a new business, you had a lot of people that were in their late 30s, early 40s. So they go and they start these wineries and, and they have, you know, just an incredible time and great success. And then you fast forward, you know, 20 years later. So we're in the 80s, you know, 30 years later, 90s. And these now people that were starting this when they were in their 30s and 40s are now in their 60s and 70s and possibly even 80s. And they're starting to look at retirement and wanting to get out of the business. And so maybe they had children that wanted to take the brand over. Great. But maybe they didn't. And so it was just kind of a natural evolution of the wine business. But instead of other families buying these brands, some of these brands had gotten so valuable that the only people that could afford to buy them were large corporations. And it dramatically changed the face of the wine industry because, as my dad says, you went from talking you know, to the owner and winemaking and having a handshake contract that was worth its weight in gold to now you talk to an accountant and you have a 50-page document that's not even worth the ink it took to sign it. And I think the fundamental change when the large corporations came in is there was a much less importance on the grapes grown by independent grape growers. And if you're a large um, outfit that owns lots and lots of vineyard, then when you buy a brand, you want to use your own fruit in production. That makes perfect business sense, but that means that you cancel the grape contracts that were coming to that winery. And then I think even a more um, challenging aspect you know, for independent grape growers is that if you're a publicly traded corporation that buys a brand, you know, publicly traded corporations are beholden to one person and one person only, and that's their shareholder. They are obligated to do everything in their power to provide a return on investment. And so when you look at it from that perspective, a publicly traded corporation essentially wants to commoditize wine because it allows them to make it more profitable. It allows you to not have to buy grapes from Sonoma County or Dry Creek Valley more specifically. It allows you to take that same label and go from a Sonoma County Appalachian wine to a North Coast or maybe even a California label because if you go down to the Central Coast or Lodi and you buy grapes for $600 a ton versus $2,000 a ton, you create profit. But you're going against the grain of every fiber that makes wine what it is. And I think even us in the industry have oftentimes overlooked just how special wine is because there's very, very few products that we put into our bodies, our temple, right? That we know when and where they came from. And think about that. I mean, the proteins that you have, the vegetables, the fruit, you know, all those things that we consume, how many of them do we know when and where? 
And to me, that's all a bottle of wine should ever be, is an absolute perfect representation of the date and the place on the bottle. It's not supposed to taste the same. It's not Coca-Cola, it's not McDonald's, it's not Coors Light. You know, it's supposed to be different from year to year, from place to place. And that to me is the big, you know, risk of commoditizing wine. And so, again, the winery I was working at got purchased by a large corporation. And so I was starting to see some of these changes from the inside out. And then within about, you know, a couple months of that, two other very prominent wineries, you know, were purchased by large corporations. And all, the first thing that happens, as I mentioned, is a lot of the grape contracts get canceled. And so here my family thought that they had, you know, 500 tons of grapes sold to these three different brands. And within the span of nine months, you know, those grape contracts got canceled. And most of the people honor the contract. So if you have another year or two years on your contract, that's great. But if you were relying on a handshake deal from the family member that you were selling grapes to, you know, that was out the window. So it, I think it's shown a spotlight on just how perilous it was to be simply an independent grape grower at that time. Because, you know, in all honesty, I had been, you know, kind of planting the seed with my family that I thought we should start making our own wines. And, you know, this was something that I really wanted to do. And they just looked at me like I was absolutely nuts and reaffirmed my place as the black sheep of the family. But all of a sudden you have this consolidation and really the first big wave of it and I think my crazy idea didn't seem quite so crazy anymore. So 21 years ago, it's hard to believe that makes me sound old. <laughs> but 1998, my parents agreed to sell me some grapes and co-sign a loan for me so I could afford to buy the grapes. And we started making our first ever wines. And so now the winery and the grape growing is still separate. Very right? separate. Yeah. And we did that um, intentionally. Not always to uh, to my liking, but... Um, my liking isn't always what's best for you know the, the big picture and that's something I appreciate greatly about you know my dad and how he set up the businesses um, we have uh, two totally separate you know entities that run the winery and run the vineyard and trust me when I say there are no family discounts and it makes perfect sense right if you look at it through the business lens and business lens only why would my brothers who run the vineyard side now sell grapes to me for less than they sell to another winery. That doesn't make any sense. You know, the, the the path forward for us to stay in this industry for generations to come is to have two really strong, viable businesses, a winery and a vineyard. So why would you sacrifice one or the other at the behest of the, of the, the other one? Um, and like I said, it, it took some uh, some figuring out and some, you know, understanding on both sides of the fence because... Trust me when I say, you know, um, holiday dinners could get a little verbal and interesting. But um, I know without a shadow of a doubt that my brothers have my best interest in mind and they know that I have their best interest in mind because we're all, um, my brothers are partners in the winery and then I'm a partner in some of the vineyard operations. So I think my dad had great foresight and understanding that that, you know, cross-pollinization was really important for the family unit moving forward. And, you know, we're stronger as two diverse businesses or related but diverse businesses than we are one totally contained business. Thank you, Clay, for that overview of your family history, which I think neatly parallels the history of California's wine industry, the ups and downs, and where we are today. The next episode will focus on Zinfandel.